0: This is Indie Live Radio and we're about to broadcast the latest edition of our programme series, Changing Minds and Moving Forward. And this week's edition we're with AIM, Aberdeen Independence Movement, and we're listening in to a meeting which they organised in May this year. They invited Antony Salamone to speak to them. Antony Salamone is a Scottish political scientist and analyst. He's the founder and managing director of European Merchants, which is a political analysis firm based in Edinburgh. In February of 2020, Anthony published a paper called The EU Blueprint, which subtitled Pathway for Scotland's Accession to the European Union Under Independence. And there is mention of some of the content of that paper in today's broadcast. More recently, he's published The Global Blueprint and that is a perspective for Scotland's foreign policy institutions, again, under independence. The meeting was chaired by Jenny Nicholl with Anthony Scalamone and questions from Aberdeen Independence Movement's members.
1: Good evening all. Um, if you're joining us tonight and would like to know more about Aberdeen Independence Movement, we'll pop the link for our website in the chat window. We're always looking for new members and welcome anyone who's interested in learning why independence is the most positive outcome for Scotland. Uh, We have Anthony here with us tonight. He is a political scientist uh, and writer. His primary areas of expertise rest in EU politics and institutions, Scottish politics, British politics and international relations. He is here with us to discuss a prospectus for Scotland's foreign policy. Welcome, Anthony.
2: Thanks very much for inviting me, and uh, yeah, I'm really pleased to be talking about the Global Blueprint, uh, which is my recent report, which I published earlier this year, uh, setting out how I think uh, Scotland could, you know, build the institutions for foreign policy under independence. Uh, yeah, so I want to talk briefly about you know, some of the sort of grounding principles that I used in writing the blueprint, and then maybe a bit about Scotland's role in the EU, uh, and perhaps Scotland and the United Nations, and then sort of Scotland's relations with other countries in the world, and so see how we, we go from there. Yes, so uh, it's a big issue, you know, I I think one of the reasons I want to write this report was to try to think through how, you know, in in what I hope is a degree of detail, you know, Scotland could could establish the institutions and it's not about, you know, deciding particular policies on the various issues that which are facing in the world and there are plenty of them and a lot of them are in the news right now. It's about saying, you know, in terms of the kind of Ministry of Foreign Affairs, uh, what it might look like, uh, where diplomatic missions could be and how many of them there might be. Um, and thinking about the kinds of, of, of structures and institutions that make sense for Scotland. So, you know, it's useful to say that, you know, uh, Scotland would be a, a relatively small state in the world. You know, I think we were aware of this. It's not a question of Scotland sort of, you know, driving the United Nations, but that's not to say that Scotland couldn't be successful and influential on the model of other countries that we're familiar with and we have great affinity with, be that Ireland or Finland or others. And indeed in the report, I spend a lot of time looking at, in particular, Denmark, Finland, Ireland and Norway as, as useful for countries of reference for Scotland and thinking about what a Ministry of Foreign Affairs could look like, and also the kind of diplomatic footprint that makes sense for Scotland, because, you know, there will always be limited resources in terms of uh, which countries you want to prioritize, uh, which issues you think are most important, uh, and trying to balance all of those in the strategy that makes sense for Scotland. So, yes, the other point I I suppose it's worth saying is that, you know, I don't talk about how Scotland could join the EU in this blueprint. I've written about that elsewhere. Uh, And also for me, you know, I uh, as a a researcher and as a thinker, I make quite a big difference between uh, EU relations or European relations and, and international relations. So Scotland's relations with the rest of the European Union or the European Union and Scotland's relations with countries outside the European Union. Obviously, it would be up for people to decide after an independence referendum when Scotland would be in the EU. Uh, if you've read any, any of my work, I think you probably would know that I would like Scotland to be in the EU. I think that would be the best option. But obviously, those are questions to be decided. So uh, so try, trying to get into this here. So one is um, what kind of what kind of foreign policy could Scotland have? You know, uh, obviously, I think it's crucial to try and to not just think about Scotland's interests in terms of trade interests or, you know, why it might be useful to be in the EU to be in the single market and so on but also to think about the kinds of values that we have in terms of democracy, in terms of human rights, in terms of the rule of law, and that a foreign policy needs to combine both of these things. It shouldn't be one or the other. You know, if it's only about Scotland's interests, then that's very sort of, you know, cold. If it's only about values, then that can be too idealistic because of course the world could be a challenging place. It's about trying to, so I think Scotland should, can and should have a values-based foreign policy, but that needs to combine both Scotland's uh, values and interests together. Uh, and try to achieve both of them, which can be challenging and sometimes. But I think it's worthwhile to try and do that. And a key part of that, of course, is it's not just thinking about the kinds of messages that Scotland be sending to the world and saying, you know, advocating, for, for instance, particular positions in the United Nations, saying, well, you know, on this issue we think this or whatever. It's about matching Scotland's internal action with its external action, because of course our credibility. And being able to say for instance that you know on this particular human rights issue we believe that this should be happening and we disagree with ha- what's happening in this particular country is what we do in our own country uh, and there's a big link between that and I'd want to see a foreign policy that was you know not just uh, trying to manage those links but be you know actively wanting to see those synergies between what we do at home and what we' be doing abroad the Scotland's role in, in the EU um, I'm happy to come back to the, the EU part in questions but you know, Scotland would be a, a, you know, a smaller member state, um, it would be a north, northern, western, relatively uh, rich member state compared to others. You know There's a the whole question of Scotland joining the EU and the timetable for that and the sequencing of that, and again I'm happy to come, come back to that later. But I suppose in the context of this global bl- blueprint, the question is what kind of role would Scotland have in the foreign policy of the European Union, so that's the EU's foreign policy towards other countries uh and you know because obviously it's it's a it's becoming an important area for the eu traditionally speaking the eu has not been particularly strong on foreign policy uh in terms of you know engagement with china or russia or even the united states uh, because uh, foreign policy is an area where the member states still retain a lot of control uh, where unanimity is often required so all the countries of the eu would have to agree in a particular position uh, and they have different views. So, for instance, if you take Russia, you know, so some, some states like Poland and the Baltics, you know, obviously are very concerned about security issues. Countries like Germany and Italy are often, you know, sometimes divided but focus more on trade issues and so on. And other country, countries, like Ireland are, you know, perhaps somewhat removed from these issues, but recognize the consequences for the other member states. So, yes, it's, it's, it's an area where there's a lot of division, and sometimes the EU can look weaker because it can't agree on a position, a stronger position in good time, by the time the EU has decided on something, sort of the issue is kind of over. Uh, But the EU is aware of that and is working to try to, you know, enhance its profile in the world beyond the traditional areas we think of in the EU, which is often huge global ramifications, even though they're ostensibly just internal EU policies. So how would Scotland be fitting into all of that? I think that's quite crucial. I suppose we would say, you know, what, what, what could Scotland bring to EU foreign policy that was unique? Either in its relationships with particular countries, which might be useful to the EU. So I'm not I'm not sure what the answers to these questions are, by the way. But I can imagine, for instance, the bilateral relationship between Scotland and Canada could be quite close. And that might be useful to the EU, because obviously the EU-Canada bilateral relationship is, relationship is one which is important to both sides. And the other is what kind of expertise and particular issues would Scotland bring to the table that might be useful to the EU in particular foreign policy questions? And again, I think that's something to be, you know, decide decided in due time, but whether that's on um, democracy and civic participation or on different ways of approaching human rights or if it's about cyber security or what, what have you you know what, what Scotland be offering that can can help the EU uh, in trying to achieve those aims of trying to you know have a, a stronger European position and advance it forward in terms of Scotland's role in the United Nations of uh, member states uh, and you know I, I think we I, I would like to think and I hope that we all would like to think that Scotland would want to be an active participant in working in the United Nations as the bedrock of the Uh, global system challenged as it might be but still uh, crucial because of course that would align with scotland's values but it would also align with interests and that's uh, you know i think when you take a longer term horizon you recognize that interests and values often coincide in the same kind of action uh, as long as you take a longer perspective so that's to say that ensuring that the united nations is effective uh, that it can continue to develop in a way which benefits all member states uh, and ensuring that the rules-based international system perhaps if it evolves, but it's still functional uh, in a way which various countries in different parts of the world, uh, have frankly undermined. And that includes the United States during under the Trump administration. Uh, all those things are crucial to Scotland because Scotland is not, is, would be a smaller state. And, and, and you know, whether you're Scotland, whether you're Ireland or whoever, you know, we, will, we would depend on a functional international system where you know, states, there is international law and states most of the time, at least adhere to the rules, we would depend on that. It would be in our interest to see that work in addition to recognizing why it would be useful uh, in terms of the values context. So the UN is big, of course, uh, and you have to prioritize uh, what is important to you in terms of your engagement across the various uh, parts of the UN system, as it's called. So it's not just the, the core principal organs of the UN but also the very specialized agencies and so on, be it the World Health Organization or the Food and Agriculture Organization and so on. What sort of priorities would scotland have and uh, how could it work with allies um, whether that be eu member states of course uh, but also countries where scotland might share particular priorities um, and we can think of some of them norway makes sense obviously norway is not in the eu but aligns with a lot of of eu thinking on i I think a a kind of partner that scotland could work with uh, on issues of the united nations Uh, and then that links through to other aspects of the eu in which you know countries like canada Uh, and ireland and others have have contributed which is is peacekeeping of course and that is an area where scotland could seek to make a contribution and of course there's been a lot of discussion in recent years uh, about uh, the kind of role that scotland might be able to fulfill as a sort of peace builder or peace facilitator uh, as part of its contribution to global progress i think that that uh, is a very worthy objective i also would say though that you know it's about it's linking back to what I was saying before about internal external action. If you wanted to have that kind of international profile, you need sort of a a peace-building ecosystem in Scotland. It's not just about saying, you know, we have a foreign policy on this and we want to sort of go out there and solve the world's problems. Uh, It's about creating networks of relationships with countries through the UN system. Uh, It's about sort sort of the research and academic experts building, about engaging different parts of Scottish civil society about showing and ensuring that sort of that peacemaking wasn't just about what you're doing abroad but also what about peacemaking here in scotland too so uh, you know linking all of that together i suppose uh and then you know through the united nations i i touched on it in the blueprint and i wrote about it separately about the prospects of scotland one day being a, a non-permanent member of the security council i think that's certainly a feasible objective um obviously uh, that takes a bit of time you need so normally you need to announce that you're running for that but Ten to fifteen years before the actual election takes place, uh, so you know Scotland would need to be established at the UN first, and then obviously over a period of time, uh, having sort of one allies uh, across the various groupings in the UN to you know announce a candidature and work on it for multiple years, uh, and then hopefully see it realised. Uh, so a longer term objective, perhaps, uh, and then on sort of Scotland's relationship with, with different countries in the world, you know, besides the international organisations. And obviously we have links ancient links with with countries in europe and beyond uh, but it would be different under independence because you know we would be engaging as as states uh and scotland would be responsible for its own foreign policy in its own right so you know obviously um this question of scotland's relationship with, with eu member states uh and you know ireland has a policy of having an, an embassy in every EU member state i think that's something that makes sense for scotland too Because it demonstrates that you you take your relationship with that country seriously, whether it be Germany or whether it be Slovenia. Uh, That being said, uh, you know, if you're a smaller country, you do need to prioritize your uh, bilateral relationships. So I think it'd be absolutely crucial for Scotland to invest in its relationship with with France and with Germany. And then of course, do you think about, you know, countries that are natural partners or perhaps not natural partners, but, but become partners for Scotland, if that's Ireland, if that's the Nordic EU member states, if that's the Baltic states, but others too, it's important not to be stuck in sort of you know, a, a concept of, well, we're you know, uh, we're, we're like Finland and, and Ireland and they should always be our allies. You know, it makes sense to work with Portugal or to with, work with Slovakia or to work with whoever in the EU as long as it made sense for Scotland and aligned with our values and you know, could achieve something positive. It's, it's always you know, useful to try to work with whoever you can in the EU, regardless of, of, of what member state it might be. Um, but then of course, there's relationships with, with other countries. Uh, the United States is is still, you know, occupies uh, a, such an important role in the world, and of course Scotland has a, a long-standing relationship with the United States. That is one where I imagine there would be a lot of investment. You know, uh, different countries that I mentioned at the start have have different approaches in terms of how many uh, consulates, for instance, they have in the United States. But I can imagine Scotland having quite a few, on the order of six or so. Uh, which would be a substantial investment, but it's a question of you know trying to link uh, with the the large Scottish diaspora in the United States, uh, and I mean broadly defined, not just people who have Scottish ancestries per se, but anyone who has an affinity with Scotland. One of the wonderful things about a diaspora policy is about you know creating an inclusivity of people who are just or and you know want to come to Scotland either to study or to for tourism or what have you, uh, and capturing all of that wonderful interest. Uh, combined with people who have Scottish roots, if you like, all of that is worthwhile. Uh, embass- embassies and consulates are a big part of that. Also, of course, about trade and investment uh, in both directions uh, and all of that together means that you know, I think it's worth- worthwhile to try to make that kind of diplomatic investment in the United States uh, in terms of a wider footprint, if you like. Uh, then of course, there's China, uh, the great rising power in the world. Uh, you know, It's not as if uh, Scottish foreign policy would necessarily change uh, the, the sort of foreign policy of China per se. And I think that's a useful example of how by working in the European Union, for instance, and shaping EU foreign policy towards China, Scotland would, would be able to have more of a voice because obviously, you know, the EU, China and the US are, are the larger uh, entities, which which shape so much of what happens in the world. Uh, and by being successful in the EU, uh, Scotland can therefore be successful in the world as well, if you like. And then of course, just to conclude, perhaps is Scotland's relationship with the UK. Um, I do touch on that in the the blueprint. And of course, I I imagine we would all want to see a a cordial relationship between Scotland and the UK, uh, following an independence process. Um, I think more work of uh, institutions for cooperation between Scotland and the UK uh, in a sort of architecture for a shared island, if you like. Indeed, I'm working on that uh, for one of my forthcoming reports. Uh, but, but needless to say, you know, the, since we both share the same island, regardless of politics in Scotland or the politics in the UK, you know, it's worthwhile to try to sustain uh, positive bilateral cooperation. Best way to do that is through institutions, uh, which you know sort of mediate some difficulties that may arise, uh, and I think that's something to spend more time thinking about. So just to conclude, you know, uh, I'm very confident that independent state Scotland could be successful and influential in the world for its size and position. I think working in the European Union and working through the United Nations will be core parts of that. It require a lot of work and effort uh, and, you know, and what we we'll would be doing at home, what we'll be doing abroad. Um, but I'm absolutely convinced that Scotland could, you know, punch above its weight, I suppose, in the world.
1: Thank you for that. Um, if anyone has any questions, you can start popping them into the chat box. Um, I have one for, um, could Scotland's interests be best served by joining the Nordic Council to work closely on international affairs, defence and security?
2: Yes, yeah, so I think the Nordic Council is an important um, organisation for Scotland to have a relationship with. Um, of course, the, the members all have different positions, I suppose, in the sense that some of them, you know, three are, are inside the European Union, in terms of the full members, I mean, and two of the full members are not, uh, and then within that, some are. You know, one is in the euro, and two aren't, and so on. Uh, so yes, I think Scotland should have a close relationship with the Nordic Council. I'm not sure if it makes sense for Scotland to be a member, to be honest. And you know, I think the, the sort of starting point would be, you know, some sort of observer status perhaps, but also to to conclude a strategic partnership, which is what I said in the blueprint between Scotland and the Nordic Council or the Nordic Council members. Uh, across a range of areas, which which make sensible sides, and then you know see how that went, and then perhaps if it made sense for Scotland to become a member, if you like, uh, then then to to move towards that step, uh, and I think that's because you know the the members of of the Nordic Council as they are at the moment, they, they have a lot in common more than 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 we do with them. Obviously, there's a you know great deal of shared history between Scotland and Norway and, and other countries and so on, but in terms of their policy similarities, linguistic similarities and, and and the rest. You know, I think it would it would be about trying to, you know, see how things went, I suppose. But that links to the wider question, which is in all of these circumstances, you know, it's not just about what we would want, it's also what what, what they would want, because you know, Scotland joining the EU or Scotland joining the Nordic Council or whatever, would change the composition of those organizations and how, sometimes change how they work. And I think it would be important for us to to recognize that we, would, that we would be causing that change and to, you know, to listen and to see you know, what, what other members think about those things and, and make sure that we you know, take that on board and decide what we would do.
1: Thank you for that. Um, can you give us a timeline for Scotland joining the EU and the main steps in that timeline?
2: I can, yes, because uh, prior to the global blueprint I wrote the EU blueprint, which is a rather long report on how Scotland could join the EU uh and you know the the shorter version is that it would probably take scotland between four to five years to join the eu from the point of application to the point of accession so there's a lot to say beyond that first of all that that is not long as it's sometimes portrayed that was quite a fast process uh, and if it took four years for scotland to join the eu it would demonstrate they were very well prepared uh also uh you know I would very much hope that uh, prior to that accession process beginning, that Scotland and the EU would be able to come to a pre-accession, so a pre-membership relationship between Scotland and the EU, as I've set out through an association agreement, uh, which would provide for know our relations with the EU during that period. So it's not as if we'd be in a vacuum during those four to five years, for instance, that we would have a relationship with the EU, which I hope would include very good access to the single market and or the customs union. But obviously that depends on what was negotiated between Scotland and the EU and perhaps potentially also the UK, if that was taking place during the transition to independence. But anyway, so in the EU blueprint, I set out um, 15 steps as I broke the EU accession process down into 15 different steps. Um, of how you would go so from day one of sending in the letter to the Council of the European Union saying, hello, we'd like to apply to the EU through to the day that Scotland joins the EU. Um, there are four main steps within that which take, which take the most amount of time, which I suppose are the ones to, to focus on perhaps. Uh, the first is the opinion from the European Commission. So after, after Scotland applies to join the EU, the, the Council will ask the Commission to prepare an opinion, it's called a PIV, on how ready Scotland is uh, at that particular time in uh, respect of meeting the, the, the famous Copenhagen criteria, these three main criteria for joining the EU. Uh, that, that can take some time from on the commission side. Uh, so it's not necessarily too much we could be done about that. Uh, the next process, step in the process, which takes a lot of time is the screening process. So, you know, after the council has received that report from the commission and, and says, yes, we want to begin uh, negotiations with Scotland on joining the EU, the commission will screen Scottish laws and policies. So it will it will study uh, everything that we have in terms of our legislation, and our policy practice and so on, to determine to what extent that matches with the EU acquis communautaire, which is the EU's bodies of rules and regulations, which every member state has to meet and you have to meet in order to join the EU. Uh, that can take quite a lot of time. Uh, the third step which takes time is the actual negotiations. So each chapter of this acquis has to be opened and closed and you know, negotiated and then closed. Uh, and, you know, obviously that normally is the longest part of the process, other things can happen alongside that. Uh, and the fourth lar- longer step is uh, after the negotiations are over. Once the negotiations are finished and uh, they've been formulated into a treaty and the treaty is signed, the treaty has to be ratified by all the existing member states and also by Scotland too. Uh, and as I said out in the e-blueprint, I believe it is right that we would have a referendum at that point. Potentially possible that other member states could have or member states could have referendums too, but I think that's unlikely. So those are the four main steps, Uh, and I've set out in the blueprint how how long I think each of them would take and why that makes sense. Uh, But yes, it's you know it's 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 not a question of you know trying to sort of skip them in in any way. Scotland is very well prepared, you know, very well qualified to be a new member state. Uh, and it, you know, is is right that we would go through the normal process as any other candidate would, but that, that would be much faster than other candidates because of our degree of preparation and having been part of the EU before.
1: Thank you. Um, is there anything that um, could threaten Scotland's opportunity for EU membership?
2: Don't I don't necessarily think so, no. So, you know, if you go back to the Copenhagen criteria, so they're they're sort of infamous, but they're really not that complicated. Uh, there are three of them. Uh, one is uh, the political one. So that means, you know, what, what state do you have in the way of, of democracy and human rights and the rule of law and so on? Um, and the second one is economic one. So, you know, do you have a, a functional free market economy? Can you cope with being part of the single market? And the third one is the institutional one. You know, so to what extent do you have the institutions and the structures to implement the rights and obligations of membership? So broadly speaking, I think that you know we are extremely well qualified on on the first one and the second one in terms of you know we have been part of the European Union before for over forty five years. We know what it's like to be part of a single market. We used to be part of it. Uh, we of course we have a democracy which is very uh, deep and has a long tradition. The same thing with the rule of law in all of these areas. So yes. So then it comes to the institutional questions, and I think it's obvious to say, of course, we are not a state at the moment. So. Of course, there are some institutions that we would have to establish uh, in our own right. Be that a central bank or a competition authority or what have you, uh, and that would take some time. You know, it's a question of how much of that could happen during the transition to independence, and how much of that might happen afterwards. Uh, And I suppose that's not an area where I I would consider a a threat in any sense of the word. But that's the area where the most work has to go into, I suppose. Now, of course, there are a number of, 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 of a select number of issues which keep. Coming up over and over again in the, the respective EU membership. And one of them is the so-called Spanish veto. Uh, I'm, I'm not concerned about this. You know, obviously, various Spanish various Spanish officials have said at different points that, the, that Spain would not sort of veto Scotland joining the EU, and, uh, as they say, as long as it was a constitutional a process uh, that Scotland took as uh, to, to, to become independent, if you like. But I suppose that links to the wider question, which is that. In order to join the EU, you need every existing member state to agree. not just mean agree at the initial stage of, you know, we're going to apply. And every member state says, OK, that sounds great. You know, every single stage of the accession process in terms of what the decisions which are taken in the Council of the EU, which is, you know, all the member states gathered together, uh, requires unanimity. So they all have to agree. So if that's on the major decision like opening the accession negotiations or that if that's on opening or closing the individual chapters or whatever, at every single point, every member state needs to agree. So you know, I have I don't anticipate difficulties in that respect. But it, it's always possible that if something you know came up between you know Scotland and Slovakia or Scotland and Finland, you know, some sort of dispute or something, which again I, I don't anticipate, but could happen. Any country could you know say you know we have a problem here, uh, and sort of put the brakes on on Scotland's accession process. Again, I don't expect that. But of course, the best way to avoid that happening links back to what I was saying before, which is to have good bilateral relations with every member state, regardless of how big or regardless of how small, from the early stage, to try to avoid any problems like that uh, coming up and avoid them having any impact on Scotland's EU accession process.
1: Thank you. Um, Other one we've got. Um, What are the benefits of Scotland being outside NATO or neutral like Ireland?
2: Yeah, so I think it's a very important question. I didn't mention it in my, my opening remarks just because there's so, much, so many things to say. Uh, I think it's, it's so first off, to, to recognize that, you know, we are not in the same position as, as Ireland. I mean, I suppose that's obvious in the sense that, you know, we have been part of NATO from the beginning. We are not a neutral state. Uh, we've never been a neutral state. Uh, and I think it would be strange for us to try to become one, if you like, uh, because, you know, what is neutrality these days? It is less about uh, not being part of military alliances and there's more about you know, what sort of uh, global order do you want to align yourself with, for instance? Because we have to be honest that there are competing systems. You know, there, I mean, it's not about sort of East or West per se, because of course there are you know, plenty of countries in both hemispheres who have different thoughts on what, how the world should be. But for instance, if Scotland were part of the European Union, you know, a core part of the EU is to try to ensure that you know, the things I mentioned before about the rules-based international system, that it continues to exist, that doesn't break down. You know, I think it's perfectly clear that you know, be it China or other, other countries in the world uh, would be perfectly content for the rules-based international system to not be as it is at the moment uh, or to weaken uh, or to, you know, I wouldn't say dissolve, but certainly something like that. So in that context of, of competition of values, uh, you know it's, it doesn't in my view make sense to be neutral because if you want to say we're going to stay out of that, then that's not so great. Um, so I think neutrality is, is outmoded and not, not something that makes sense in the, the, our present world. Um, also it's worth r- r- sort of underlining that you know that Ireland, of course it, it has its military neutrality and is not in NATO, uh, is not uh, you know depends in some respects on NATO for its defense. Like it depends on the UK, uh, particularly in terms of uh, air force capacity, which Ireland does not have, uh, which the UK and NATO provided to it uh, on an as-needed basis, if you like. So it's, it's, Scotland is not, so, so Ireland is not completely cut off from NATO anyway. So in that context, I think it's it's you know that that's the kind of context that I I imagine. Uh, also, I suppose, worthwhile to think of what are the kind of implications beyond so you know, you, I would start at the beginning. So what makes sense for Scotland's defense and security interests, you know, as Scotland, I mean, we think about that. And then we think about, you know, what makes sense, uh, in terms of, of our closest allies, and I spoke in if you were in the EU you know, the EU. So what what, what does it make sense in terms of EU member states? Because it's not about the EU, it's not just being about, you know, part of a a market where you trade with each other and so on. It's about, you know, taking other countries seriously. So for instance, when the Baltic states and and Poland, rather say, you know, we, we, particularly Baltic states, we have an existential fear of Russian aggression, not least considering what happened in Ukraine. uh, And, you know, being, that's extremely important and serious to us. And that's why we're in the EU. And that's why we're in NATO. Uh, And, you know, Scotland saying, okay, we, we understand that and you know, we, we take that on board and we're, we're not just going to just, you know, nod our heads and, you know, say that we, we understand your concerns, we're going to actively do something to contribute to that defense of yours, because, you know, we're allies here. Uh, and if, you know, that means being in NATO, for instance, and we're part of that, uh, part of that political and military alliance, then, you know, that will be part of our contribution. So I think it's something, you know, uh, this is a debate which will have to be had because there's clearly differences of views within independence movement, perhaps more broadly and whether or not Scotland should be a NATO. But it's, it's, I just think it's worthwhile to take that broader perspective of, you know, not just about our core defense and security interests on their own. And obviously that should be the first place to start, but also about, you know, the implications for our closest allies. And then, you know, what kind of, of country we're going to be in the world, I suppose, and trying to, you know, evaluate all of those different thoughts.
1: Thank you. Um, Would sharing embassies with the remainder of the UK be of advantage or disadvantage, noting our inclusive international ideals versus the current hostile attitude of Westminster towards the international community?
2: Yeah, so this is an interesting concept of sharing embassies. I remember it from the the, the 2014 referendum Uh, perspective. I do not think sharing embassies makes sense. You know, you, you do see that in, in some parts of the world. So for instance, we, we talked about the Nordic countries. Uh, if you go to Berlin, the, the five Nordic countries, they share an embassy compound in Berlin. It's quite unique, in fact. And uh, they actually have their own distinct buildings, but it's in the same sort of complex, uh, which was designed for them. Uh, I don't think that makes sense for Scotland. You know, obviously there'd be greater costs, I suppose, in finding distinct premises. Uh, in different parts of the world uh, and sort of renting them or buying them and so on. Uh, but I consider that to be a strategic investment in Scotland's representation in the world uh, because, you know, what our embassies or consulates or whatever, you know, they're sort of uh, islands of, of Scotland in terms of values and interests and and so on. And, and to my way of thinking, it makes sense to have, you know, a distinct Scottish presence for all of those Um you know, and uh, that doesn't mean that where it makes sense, for instance, for a Scottish embassy in wherever, you know, be it in, in Canada or in South Africa to work with the UK embassy there, where, um, you know, where it makes sense for, for M- Scottish and UK embassies that are in the same country to work together, then, of course, they, they should, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But I definitely think that it's worthwhile to have a distinct presence for Scotland
1: in the world. Thank you. Uh, what should we be doing right now to build better international relations?
2: I think this is a really important point because there is a lot that we can do regardless of the constitutional debate. So, you know, I suppose we can look at, you know, how Scotland can engage in the European Union, obviously from the outside and also not being a state and how Scotland can engage with the rest of the world. I think in some respects, you know, I suppose it was perhaps easier and certainly more important in our engagement with the European Union, because of course, I've written a lot about, you know, the, the, the ways in which Scotland can try and maintain its links well, with the eu i think there, are you know maybe two or three things which come to mind the first is the importance of you know trying to sustain bilateral and multilateral relationships over the longer term uh, and that means that you know identifying and working on areas where there's mutual interest so you know practical cooperation on areas of mutual interest you know whether that be on climate change and renewable energy to democracy human rights to whatever it makes sense, you know, if it's between Scotland and Germany or Scotland and Slovakia or Scotland and Denmark, areas where the other, uh, both sides feel like they're gaining something from those relationships is crucial. Uh, and that links to my sort of other point, which again, I've, I've also written about, which is, you know, the, the relation, those relationships can't be about talking about independence, you know, because th- that's not, but in terms of the Scottish government or other official actors engaging with those countries, you know I can't emphasize enough the importance of not talking about independence because they're aware of our constitutional debate. That's not what. That's not something you can sustain a bilateral relationship on for the years ahead. The second is is what kind of you know contributions might Scotland want to make to the future of Europe because we're still part of Europe, uh, just to say to the rest of the EU. You know that we you know we're we're still here and we still are interested in in the future of our continent. Uh, The EU is currently launching uh, what it's called the Conference on the Future of Europe. I'd like to see if there is a space for for Scotland, be that the Scottish government or us, as civil society, to make contributions to that dialogue on the future of Europe. I'd like to see that. Uh, And generally thinking about the longer horizon here, because, you know, regardless of when a referendum might happen, we know that it would take time for uh, independence to be negotiated and then time for Scotland to join the EU uh, and you know that, that's a matter of years uh, and thinking you know where would Scotland be at the end of that process in terms of its relationships with countries in the EU and so on and then the rest of, you know the, the rest of the world the the, the big wide world there uh, yeah there's there's a, a lot I suppose it's you know which countries do you want to prioritize you know we would always talk about the US and Canada and they are important in different ways uh, there's of course Scotland has a special relationship with Malawi you know there are other countries too, I suppose, that you know might might be useful partners for Scotland to sort of invest in, if you like, uh, because it does have to be a choice because of the limited resources of the, the Scottish government under devolution. Uh, and you know what do you want to focus on again on those countries? You know you can talk think about linking with the Scottish diaspora as we talked about earlier. Uh, you can consider how much of it is about trade and investment, which of course are important. And the Scottish government through Scottish Development International has a number of of offices besides the uh, sort of Scottish government offices if you like, which have been opened in recent years. Um, you can talk about, you know, a sort of values agenda. It's perfectly possible for Scotland to, to, you know, continue to be active in the United Nations. Don't have to be a member state of the UN to have something to say at the UN, uh, you know, through, through that. And I suppose trying to link all that together in a way, which makes sense, um, you know, so it requires a bit of strategy uh, and choice making on, on sort of, you know, where you put your resources, I guess.
1: Go. Um, can you see an independent Scotland adopting a diaspora strategy like the Irish government has?
2: Uh, the, yes, I think it's certainly possible that, that that you know Scotland could learn a lot from the way in which Ireland engages with the diaspora. Um, obviously, in a different context, in the sense that, you know, we have our own circumstances uh, that we, you know, will be becoming independent, you know, obviously in, in the, the 21st century, uh, even down to, you know, for instance, we, we talked talk about the Irish diaspora with the United States, even that, you know, the, 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 the time in which the sort of the Irish diaspora mainly moved to the U.S. is different from the time in which, you know, the Scottish diaspora would have originally moved to the U.S. It would have been earlier for Scotland in most cases. So taking all that into account, sure. But again, uh, one of the re- some of the reasons why I like the Irish diaspora policy is it links through to what I was talking about before, this importance of taking a holistic approach and considering what you do at home and abroad as well. So you know uh, for instance, I analyzed <laughs> I read all the manifestos at the election and I, wrote, I tweeted about them. And one of the things I noted was that the Scottish conservatives mentioned diaspora and this is interesting. and they said how useful it would be, you know how great it would be for Scottish business opportunities and to leverage their connections and so on. And there's nothing wrong with, you know, talking about the diaspora, you know, engaging with the diaspora for the purposes of trade. That's fine. But it's not that extracting things from them. And that's the key about the Irish approach. It's about a community, you know, about, about linking people together who are from Scotland, who, you know, have lived in Scotland, who like Scotland, who studied in Scotland, whatever, and bringing all those people together in, in, a, in a spirit of friendship, where yes, there could be economic and trade aspects but it's also about culture it's also about education it's also about values it's about all those things uh, and the irish approach is focused on that i like that uh, also the irish strategy includes some funding for sort of immigrant uh, support programs and people that you can apply for that as an organization i think that's worthy again showing that you know it's not just about receiving things from the diaspora it's also giving things to them too uh, and then taking that very broad approach you know, it's not about you know do you have a scottish accent or were you born in scotland or you know your family from scotland it's you know do you just have an affinity with scottish culture or scotland and and then you're welcome to be part of that i like all those aspects and i'd like to see them replicate here too and again most of that can be done now it doesn't have to wait for independence
1: another one would the eu be flexible regarding currency and would the eu want to set limits on running a deficit
2: yeah so these are are, are, uh, important questions again very salient ones they seem to come up a lot i suppose so on the question of, of of currency. You know, this all links back to the, the key that I was talking about so of all the EU's rules and policies and so on. And if you want to be a new member state, you know, you have to, you have to satisfy them, you have to meet them all at, at the date you join the EU. And then from then on, obviously you're part of trying to shape those rules. Uh, but the initial phase, you know, you need to either implement them or agree something different with the EU. Um, I think that the EU would be willing to show some flexibility with Scotland on the currency question, which is to say, for instance, you know, would would we have to have our own currency sort of, you know, in order to be able to apply to join the EU and so on. I don't necessarily think so. I do think that the EU would find it odd uh, if we, as a country as we are, a country as rich as we would be and are, not to have a currency. I think they might find that strange, Uh, but I imagine they would be willing to work with You know, whatever. So, I guess we don't know what the circumstances would be. You know, on the day in which Scotland applied to join the EU, would we still be using sterling? Would we have our own currency? We don't know the answer to that. So, it's kind of hard to judge how the EU would respond. But generally speaking, I think that the EU would be willing to be flexible as long as we demonstrated that there was a clear plan of what we were doing. So, for instance, if we didn't have our own currency at the time we applied to join the EU, that you know there was a blueprint for you know saying whatever within the next five years or ten years or whatever that seems reasonable here is our plan for when we would be moving to our own currency. And I think that in, in, in the longer term, the EU would want to see that. Uh, so, you know, there, there's that then obviously there's the issue of the Euro, uh, you know, generally speaking, you, d- you don't move straight to the Euro. I mean, you, you have your own national currency and then you fill a number of steps and you sort of if you like merge your currency into the Euro. So you would normally have to have your own currency first. Uh, there is no you know, requirement that you must join the Euro in a particular timetable. Uh, but I, I I hope that our you know, debate can move beyond that kind of thinking, because you know the vast majority of member states are in the euro, and future ones will be as well. Uh, and there are disadvantages to being in that small group of countries who are not in the euro in terms not just in terms of economics, but uh, in terms of your level of of influence in the EU, because the eurozone is one of the core aspects of the EU. And for us to you know in the fullness of time to be willing to have that kind of debate with ourselves. Of not just would we be forced to join the EU? And the answer to that is no. as it does it make sense for us to be oh, sorry in the euro? Does it make sense for us to be in the euro? And you know, should we actually think about it? So that's something for the longer term, I suppose, but worth keeping in mind. Now, on the question of, of the deficit, uh, this is the national budget deficit. Yes, there are ru- EU rules uh, on sort of national uh, budget deficits and national debts uh, to try to you know ensure the the, f- the financial sustainability of the EU. I suppose both within individual member states in the EU as a whole. Uh, this does include the famous 3%, so your budget deficit is supposed to be 3%. I am very confident that there will be flexibility on that uh, in terms of you know, what Scotland was negotiating with the EU during the process to join the EU, which is to say, you know, if a Scottish government were to, to go to the EU and say, you know, we've just become independent, uh, we have unique circumstances here in the sense that we're spending a lot to try to build the institutions that I was talking about before, uh, you know, and but again, here is our plan of how we we aim to to you know achieve the sort of deficit targets over a certain period of time and so on. You know, the EU may have particular thoughts on whatever proposals are made, but I'm very confident that you know the solutions could be found on those questions. But I suppose it links back to the key point that I would make, which is that for any any of the issues where Scotland was seeking something different or special, you know, a huge part of it is not just about what you're asking; it's about you know how you you ask it in the sense that you know you you have you know a clear plan in case of what you're proposing uh and you know you have uh, evidence and research and so on you know slightly contrast the uh, uk conducted its brexit process for instance uh, and if you frame it all in those ways you know the commission will be able to look at this and say okay well we you know here we think about this and, Yeah, this makes sense here's this plan you know and and, and sort of uh, uh, internalizing understanding how the EU works and then when you go to make your requests you're in that same frame of mind it makes a massive difference along with what you're asking for make but that still makes a massive difference to what the eventual response is from the EU institutions.
1: Thank you for that one um many people speak about a queue to join the EU is there such a thing as a queue? Uh,
2: no. I <laughs> suppose I could just leave it at that. But in the, the interest of discussion, I can fill, fill that in. No, there's no queue. So, you know, each, each country that applies to join the EU, uh, you know, it's, its application advances at its own pace. You know, uh, and first of all, you know, the, the European Commission, you know, whether, whether it be the Directorate General, which was responsible for enlargement negotiations and joining the EU, is, is you know, the whole thing of, of, of joining the EU is called enlargement. Uh, you know, they, they 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 can, the Commission multitasks, you know, they can do more than one thing at once, you know, Commission is one of the most professional civil services, you know, in terms of the operations, if you like, in the world, they can handle more than one EU application. And in fact, they're doing that right now. You know, how long your your process to join the EU takes depends on you, the country in question, you know, so if you're Scotland, and you've been part of the EU before, and you're, you're very well prepared on the aspects of the acquis like we talked about previously, and, you know, you, you're very in a very good position when it comes to the Copenhagen criteria, then of course, you know, your application is going to be faster than if you were a country which was not in those circumstances. So, no, there's no queue uh, and, you know, but I suppose the wider point is, as I was mentioning, sort of in an indirect way previously, how long the, the EU accession process would take isn't just, isn't just about the process. It isn't just about what the EU thinks. It's also about what we do. So, for instance, how quickly could, would we establish the, those institutions during the transition to independence? How much would we prepare for our eventual EU application during the transition to independence? All those things could shorten the amount of time uh, that the EU accession process would take. Uh, So in a sense, a lot of it would also depend on us.
1: Thank you for that. Um, A large driver of Brexit was a lack of knowledge about how the EU works. How can we improve the public's knowledge of what it does and how it works?
2: Yes. Yeah, it is, it is a crucial point, of course, because you know, to, in my way of thinking, you know, joining the EU is a, is, a, is a major constitutional decision because it changes how politics works, you know, I suppose obviously in the sense that you know, you, members of the EU voluntarily transfer parts of their sovereignty to the European level. Uh, and you know, obviously the Scottish government would be there along with all the other governments making decisions. There would be Scottish members of the European parliament once again, in fact, there'd be more of them compared to what we had previously. I'm sure, uh, and there's all of those those aspects, but it, 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 you know it, 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 I don't think we should take it for granted that that in the, this, there's a pro EU consensus uh, consensus or majority in Scotland at the moment. You know that that we should take the approach that 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 should be sustained, it should be renewed. that people can have confidence in, in why it makes sense for for Scotland to join, but to continue to be in the EU, and not just in terms of interests like I mentioned of the single market, but also in terms of values. And I think we all have a role to play in that. It's not just about the Scottish government telling us, "Oh, we, we you know, the EU is great, and you know, we, we should stay in the EU, and you know, whatever." It's about all of us being involved. So, you know, people things that people mention. Because, of course, this kind of lack of knowledge of the EU is not unique to the UK. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's, it can also be the case in other and existing member states, continuing member states as well. People talk about education and, and ensuring that the EU is part of the curriculum. I, you know, I think that's that's good. To talk about you know sort of school trips to Brussels, to visit the institutions. And I think that's all great too, uh, you know, I think the um, so political politics and political education for all, basically everyone generally is nice, all of that, sure. But I think it needs to go wider than that. It's a question about our media, uh, our media reporting, you know, in, in, in certainly much more detail than it does in the moment about EU issues. Uh, so that means journalists themselves being aware of understanding how the EU works, how how we as Scotland fitted into that. And, you know, that they would, you know, develop their reporting on that so we could be informed uh, both through the eventual public broadcaster which would have but also the rest of the media Uh, and also it's about politicians themselves making sure that they you know they are fully up to date on how you know all the details on how the eu works on the politics in the various member states uh, which will help them not just to inform their decisions but also when they're communicating to the public what they're doing in brussels you know that they're up to speed on all that and you start to link all these things together also with politicians our, our Scottish politicians being honest about the kinds of compromises that are required when you're in the EU because you know it's not about you know of course we're not going to get everything we want all the time there's compromise to be, you know and sometimes we w- might win on a thing and we might say lose we might not get exactly what we want on a thing and that's that's the whole point of multilateralism um but there's you know there's a tendency and this is true in every member state to sort of you know um uh, as, as as EU officials bemoan to sort of Europeanize failures and nationalize successes. So something goes really well, you can say, oh, this, this was us, this was Scotland, and if something's bad, you say, oh, that's Brussels fault. To not do that, to be honest and saying, you know, there are some challenges here and you know, we're working very hard and we're working with our allies and, you know, whatever. So if you link all that of, you know, politicians being honest and being, you know, fully up to date on the details of the EU, a well-informed media providing us with kinds of information, you know, the education aspect as well, and more generally, just a you know a healthy civic debate on European issues. I saw a, num- a number of specific proposals in the EU blueprint on some ideas. One was sort of a standing you know not a citizens assembly in the sense of a want to come up with policy recommendations, but a sort of you know standing civic forum on European issues, uh, where government ministers or senior civil servants and others would come on a regular basis and engage with members of the public and talk about what Scotland was doing in the EU and you know, actually listen to their feedback and you know incorporate what they were doing. Uh, uh, also increasing learning of languages as well. And and when you add all of that together, I'd like to think we'd be in a place where, you know, obviously it's not about telling people to like the EU. You know, it's about ensuring that people have enough information to make their own informed judgment on what they think about the EU generally and then specific aspects of how the EU works. Uh, And I think if we would do a a collection of all those things, then we'd certainly be in a better place than the UK was throughout the duration of its membership of EU.
1: Thank you for that. Um, I was just wondering if you have anything you'd like to sum up with. Um, we've had quite a lot of questions tonight already.
2: Yeah, well I think that, you know, um, both on on sort of Scotland's relationship with the EU and joining the EU and foreign policy, there, there's so much to to think about and, and discuss. And I'm you know, I'm I'm I suppose it's you know, I, I'm I'm pleased i uh, sorry I, I, I' clearly i'm not i'm not entirely sure what I want to say to conclude, which to say that I think it's really important that we debate the, you know these issues uh, in in detail you know that, that that's my thought you know i I know you know we i feel that oftentimes our debates at the stage of should we be in the eu or not you know and that's a perfectly legitimate important question, as I said at the end sort of the in the middle, I think it would be right to have a referendum not at the very beginning of the process but in the end because that's what most countries do you know, once the, once the negotiations had finished with the EU, you'd have a referendum on whether or not you sort of approve the negotiations and then to join the EU. Uh, and, you know, having that kind of a more detailed discussion on on sort of what kind of member states could be in the EU. And of course that includes the euro but also on foreign policy and all these other issues. You know, that, that I think that that is something which is worth talking about now. It doesn't have to wait until after an independence referendum. Uh, and, you know, of course, um, other people are thinking about this and Stephen Gethins wrote his, his book, Nation to Nation. I know he spoke at a previous event of yours. You know, I think that's fantastic. Uh, and just trying to, to say that, you know, there's a lot that we can be talking about. There's a lot that the Scottish government and others, you know, first of all, things they are doing, but secondly, things they can be doing now. Uh, and I think when you add both of those together, you know, a, a more detailed public debate on, on EU and, and international affairs in Scotland plus what we as Scotland collectively both government and civil society can be doing on those things, regardless of the independence debate. And I think both those things together would move us into a better place from where we have been in the sense that there's there's so much that we have to share and contribute to the world. And we we do that in our different ways, but I'm sure that there's more that we can do, and I think it's worthwhile to try to do that.
1: Thank you so much for your time tonight. Um, We've had lots and lots of questions submitted, Julie. just want to say thank you all for coming as well thank you all if there's any more questions and things we can always forward them on to you and we'll pop the links up on our social media for the um the various different blueprints you've done that we've got already thank you very much night night all
0: you've been listening to indie live radio and that was another edition of our series changing minds moving forwards And this week we were with the Aberdeen Independence Movement. The team here at Indy Live Radio just want to say thanks again, folks, up in Aberdeen, for letting us broadcast the meeting. We really appreciate that, and it helps to spread the word about all the pieces we need in place for moving towards independence. If you want to contact the Aberdeen Independence Movement, you'll find them on Facebook and Twitter.